0: Scripture today is from Hosea 6, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to section. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people.
1: Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Good to see you all survive the 4th of July. In 32 years of ministry, one of the great joys I've had as a pastor is officiating at weddings. Had one last weekend. It's good to have Nate and Maddie back after your honeymoon. Welcome back. (laughs) Went to another one yesterday of the Cole family. You know, weddings are such wonderful times and experiences. The couple always stands there with such a sense of hope. A hope of a lifelong trust and love together. Faithfulness and growth over time. That beautiful passage as God created marriage in Genesis where he says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife... And the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a beautiful picture of what God designed marriage to be. This place of covenant commitment that produces oneness. A oneness where there's complete openness, nakedness with no shame, of delight in one another and there's no fear at all. That someone sees everything that you are and loves and accepts you as you are. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that God's created. It's a gift of God to us. And marriage covenant, the covenant we make in a, in a marriage as we stand up and as a couple comes up and share their vows with one another, that covenant is meant to be a picture of God's covenant love for us. It's a beautiful thing, but when a spouse is unfaithful, then it is devastating. It destroys trust. The marriage itself is often shattered. Some of you have experienced this. Uh, I've walked a number of people in this body through the terrible pain of adultery. Now, sometimes that marriage covenant can be restored, and that's a miracle of God. But for that to happen, there has to be genuine repentance on the part of the offending spouse. If the repentance is insincere, then there can be no trust rebuilt. There can be no restoration. There has to be sincere, honest repentance. That offending person must truly be able to say, no, I give up all my excuses. I face my sin. I admit it and there's no excuse for it. I'll give up my control and I'm willing to fully... Repent and let go of it and be, learn to be a different person. Well, in this profound and beautiful book of Hosea that we've been going through these last few weeks and will continue through the summer, God compares His relationship with His people to a marriage. A marriage where Israel, His people, have been unfaithful. They have been adulterers. They've worshipped other gods. When they are afraid of being attacked, they've gone to other nations and put their trust there. They've betrayed their covenant relationship with Yahweh, the true God of Israel, their husband. And in our passage today, we see an example of insincere repentance, a repentance that is not a true repentance of coming openly and admitting sin and facing it squarely. And as we look at how Israel responds and then how God responds, we can learn and we can understand what it truly means for us to have a covenant relationship with God today. And it will help expose when our hearts are insincere when we come with an insincere repentance to God ourselves. So pray with me if you would. Lord, as we look at this amazing book that you've chosen to communicate to us as a picture of a marital relationship between you and your people, we have to admit when we look at our own hearts that we are adulterers. We have trusted in other things besides you. And we're often blind to our own sin. We're blind to our excuses. We're blind to the ways in which we insincerely repent. We keep self on the throne instead of turning our lives over to you. Show us today, Lord, where our repentance is insincere, that we might more fully repent and discover real life, deeper life, intimate life in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we insincerely repent, then we end up coming to God in an insincere way and we end up bargaining with God. We see that in the first three verses. Now, let me read these verses again and and hear them. They they are a beautiful song. In fact, when I used to lead music, I used to lead a song directly from verse 3. Word for word, that's a beautiful song of submission to God, coming to God, pressing on to know Him. Listen to the words. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He's torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. It is a beautiful poem, a beautiful song. And it describes God as a faithful healer, one we can trust in, that He will heal and and that He heals like the spring rain that brings life to the earth. And like the spring rain, He will do it faithfully, regularly. He will heal us. It's a beautiful exhortation, isn't it? Let's press on to know the Lord. But look at God's response in verse 4. That's the catch. It sounds good, but listen to what God says in response What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What should I do with you, O Judah? You see, God's not impressed by their insincere repentance. But we have to ask, why is that? Why? Well, it sounds pretty good. I mean, couldn't God just encourage him? Yeah, that's pretty good, you know, but there's a few things you left out here. I want, I want you to go a little further. Why? But God doesn't do that. In fact, God's not excited at all about this little poem. So why is that? Well, let me give you some reasons why I think God's not impressed with this song of insincere repentance. Look back at the end of chapter 5. Verse 14 describes God as a lion. He's going to come and He's going to tear Israel. It's a picture of discipline where they're going their own way and so He's going to tear them to, to wake them up. But notice what He says in verse 15. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Now, why did God tear them as a lion? Why did he bring discipline into their lives? Well, in verse 15, it's pretty clear, so that they would acknowledge their guilt, their sin, that they would face the fact that they have hearts that wander away from him. You see, God knows that a healthy relationship with Him has to be based on reality. It has to be based on honestly looking at our hearts and saying, yes, Lord, I run away from You all the time. I, I need Your grace and Your mercy and Your forgiveness every moment of every day. God knows that that is where real intimacy with Him comes from. And so it says He tore them so that they would acknowledge their guilt and out of that, seek His face, seek His mercy, seek His grace. So that's why God tore them. But listen to this song in chapter 6. Read it carefully and you see they're saying, well, yeah, God tore us, but let's go to Him for healing. Let's press on to know Him. Let's press on to, to, to make sure we come to Him because He is so faithful to heal us. But notice they say nothing about their sin. They've missed it. They've totally misunderstood God's discipline in their lives. Anything less than saying, Lord, I'm a sinner that needs you every moment, God knows is not only incomplete repentance, but it's not true relationship with God. In the Tyndale Commentary, David Hubbard says this about this passage. The crucial requirement of admitting their guilt, verse 15 of chapter 5, has been omitted. They face their woundedness, but not their waywardness. Healing is sought, even resurrection. On the third day, He'll raise us. But no specific sin is mentioned. This absence of repentance... And failure to confess sins by name contrasts sharply with Hosea's closing song of penitence at the end of the book. See, he makes a good point that here, halfway through the book of Hosea, the people of Israel haven't gotten it. They're saying, okay, 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 God, you know, can you take away these consequences, make our lives better. But they're not facing their sin. But at the end of the book, and this is a preview of really the climax of the whole book in chapter 14. Let me read those three verses and you'll hear what God's looking for. Chapter 14 says this, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, okay, this is what God, this is the song God wants us to sing. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will not say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. See, this is a picture of true repentance, right? Coming to God and saying, I'm a mess, God. (laughs) I need your grace every moment. And when we come that way, God is so ready to bless us with his presence and his love and his care. That's all he's looking for is this heart of true repentance. Why did he reject this song in chapter 6? Because they're ignoring the whole reason God tore them to get them to face their own sinfulness. Another reason I think he rejects this song of theirs is that they see their problem as their woundedness, not as their sinfulness. You see, it's so easy in our Christian life as it was for Israel to say, "Well, I really want is God's blessing, not God. I want my life to go well. I want good crops. I want a good vineyard. I want a good job. I want a good family. I want this and that. How do I get that? Well, I'll go to God. I'll press on to know God so I can get his blessings rather than him. And see, God doesn't want that kind of relationship. Imagine having a marriage that way. Yeah, I want to be in relationship with you as long as I get a lot of really good stuff from you. And you take care of the things that I want you to take care of. And, you know, you're the kind of spouse I want you to have. And, you know, let's make a deal here. That's not a kind of marriage that any of us would want, ultimately. You see, their see their problem is their woundedness. And it, I think of this when a, marri- when a family, a marriage has separated because of adultery. There's been adultery and so they're working on it. They've separated. And the offending spouse says something like this. And I've heard this a number of times. Okay, okay. I, I know I got caught and I admit it now. I admit it. And I know God's forgiven me, so how come you can't forgive me and let me back in the house? You see, that is not real repentance, is it? That's insincere repentance. That's saying, you know, I'm not the problem you are now. And you need to forgive me and let me back in without me having to change and deal with my heart and face my sin at all. Trust cannot be rebuilt on that basis. But that's the way we come to God too often. You know, okay, God, okay, God, I accept your forgiveness. Yeah, I know I was wrong. Now make my life all fixed up and better again. It's insincere. It's seeing the real problem is that I got caught (laughs) and I don't like the consequences, so please take away the consequences. The problem is my woundedness, not my sin, and God will not... Deal with us on that basis. We want the pain gone, but we don't want to face our own sin. Okay, God, yeah, I know I blew it, but you know, it's really my parents' fault, actually. (laughs) They didn't raise me right, and etc., etc. Now you need to forgive me and bless me. That is not sincere repentance. Another reason I think God may reject this song that sounds so good is that they're really relying on their efforts, their efforts, not on God's mercy. If you read carefully this little song, they come and they're saying, oh, let's press on to know the Lord. You know, we'll do our part. And then God will be obligated to do His part in return. (laughs) It's a bargaining with God, isn't it? It's saying, God, if I do this, then you need to do this. Or I'll quit. I'll go find some other way to make my life work apart from you. I've told the story before of when about four years into my Christian life, I had learned lots of rules and formulas about how to be a good Christian. And I was really good at following them. I worked hard at it. I pressed on to know the Lord. And then everything started to fall apart in my life, and I was still pressing on, but I was going through a time of spiritual dryness and difficulty. And at that point, I literally told the Lord, I quit. I don't want to be a Christian. If this is the way it works, I don't want it. Fortunately, God didn't let me get very far, and He brought some difficulties into my life. He tore me to bring me back. But that attitude is one I think that's fairly common for us and I fall into it again still sometimes where I just think, God, you're not doing your part. I'm doing mine. You see, that's bargaining with God and I know too many believers that have kind of withdrawn from God because they, don't, they aren't getting what they want from God so they're just depending on other things. That's insincere Repentance. I like the way Mark Buchanan puts it in his book, Your Church is Too Safe, where he says this. Speaking of healing and our lives getting better, he says, there are no guarantees. Healing is always a gift, never a right. It's always something we ask for humbly, look for hopefully, and if given, receive gratefully. But it's not something we demand and then expect. The difference between these two postures, asking And demanding is vast. The first is the attitude of the child or the servant. The second of the spoiled child or the despot. And frankly, God will not give in to a spoiled child or a despot who demands that he give us what we want. You see, the Christian life actually is one in which we grow more and more over time in the in a understanding in a sense of our own sinfulness Charles Spurgeon put it this way the nearer a person lives to God the more intensely they will mourn the evil of their own hearts the nearer a person lives to God the more intensely they they will mourn the evil of their own hearts I've explained before I want to highlight it again the the growth, the progression in the Apostle Paul's life. Maybe you've noticed that early in his writings, one of his earliest books, 1 Corinthians, how does he describe himself? I'm the least of the apostles. You know, out of all the great apostles, well, I'm, I'm the least. But God's grace has been great to me. About five years later, he wrote the book of Ephesians. His mind has developed, he's changed some, he's progressed, and now he's, how does he describe himself? He says, I am the least of the saints, but God's grace has been great to me. He's having a deepening sense of his own sinfulness. One of his last books he ever wrote, First Timothy, not long before he was beheaded by the Romans. How does he describe himself? I'm the chief, the foremost of sinners. You see, over time, he's gotten a deepening sense of how desperately he needs God and that he, apart from God, is utterly lost. Yes, in God, he's a new creation, but apart from God, he's lost, and therefore, he needs to depend on God every moment. But if we are insincere in our repentance, we're not willing to face our sinfulness, then we bargain with God. So how does God respond to this kind of insincere repentance? Well, we see this in the next few verses, 4 through 7, where he says, What can I do with you, O Ephraim? He's like an exasperated father dealing with his child that he just has no idea what to deal with. He says, Everything I do doesn't work. God cries out in pain, in the pain of the relationship. He says, their loyal love, verse 4, verse 5, is fleeting. They don't mean what they say. They're simply trying whatever strategy to get my blessings, but they don't want me. And God's heart is broken over our waywardness. He's saying they don't get it. They don't get it. So what does God do? He then, verse 5, speaks, Truth into our lives. The power of these words is amazing. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light which goes forth. He says, He sends His truth, the Word of God, His prophets, to hew us to pieces. Now, you know, this is a figure of speech. He, it's metaphor, not to destroy us, not to destroy His people. But rather to cut away all the excuses, all the demandingness, all the bargaining, so that we'll stand before him and say, yeah, you're right, I'm a mess. I need you. It's an act of love from God to cut through our defenses, our lies, our excuses, our false beliefs, so we will trust him and be able to respond to what he says in verse 6, which is what he really Really wants It's a wonderful verse that's quoted in the New Testament. For I delight, God says, this is what I'm looking for in a relationship with my people. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God's saying, I know your tendency. You get religious hoping that you'll get something from me. So you do sacrifices, Israel. So you commit to going to church more and reading your Bible more and having your quiet time, O Christian, thinking that somehow, okay, now God's obligated to bless me. And God says, I don't want your religiosity. I want your love. I want you to know me. I want an intimate relationship. That's why in this whole book of Hosea, he keeps going back to this, this figure, this analogy of marriage because... Marriage is the clearest picture of what God wants in a relationship with us. A loyal, faithful love and intimacy that is beautiful, close, trusting, based on who God really is, a God of holiness, a God of grace, and a God of forgiveness. You see, what God really wants is to fulfill the love story that he began before he even created you a love story that has been the story of all of history, which is God pursuing man, creating man, and then when Adam transgressed, he began the process of redemption to call us back, all pointing to Jesus as the one who we can trust in, who died on the cross so that we can face squarely our sin and say, yes, Lord, this is all I have to offer you is my sin, and he offers us Life and forgiveness in response. This is what God wants from us. I think it's helpful to look at how Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 9. He also quotes it in chapter 12 where he says this, the Pharisees were in arguing with him and the Pharisees in chapter 9 verse 11 say, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn, he tells the Pharisee. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus makes the point that God calls us and what He wants from us is to be a loving people, loving Him and loving one another much more than religious people. That's His call for us. That's His desire for us. And then in verse 7, He reveals the pain of this relationship. Like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. That word for dealing treacherously is betrayal it's the idea of betrayal in a marriage where someone is unfaithful and he cries out and says oh this is what you've been you've been unfaithful to me what what is that like what's that pain of that for god i think i have an example for you i received this email from a friend that i helped walk through the betrayal in her marriage, and she says this about what it felt like to her to go through this. Think, as you hear this, think about how God feels in our betrayal of him. No matter how a spouse is lost, it's unbearable. I do think, however, that betrayal creates a unique modulation of emotions. When a spouse chooses betrayal and leaves, the remaining spouse loses the future and the past. Any good from the past is thrown into question. Did love, authentic love, ever truly exist? Therefore, one experiences agony, a reliving of the how-can-I-give-you-up moments intertwined with the you-are-determined-to-turn-from-me realities. At first, betrayal seems like something impossible to heal from completely. How does one live on when the future and the past Have been stolen. What a picture of the pain that God goes through in our betrayal of Him as we put our trust, our faith in other things. If we fail to sincerely repent, what are the consequences we experience in our lives? He goes on in the passage. Verse 8, he talks about at Gilead, it's a city of wrongdoers tracked with bloody footprints. What's he describing? An important city in Israel that used to be well known for a great victory and he said now it's just a violent place. You see, when we don't sincerely repent, we we begin, rather than trusting God, we begin to depend on other people, we manipulate them for our purposes and we end up doing harm in our relationships. We bring violence, essentially. But in a bigger sense, this is a description of our cities, isn't it? Anytime you get a lot of people together who aren't trusting God, what's the result? Violence, bloody footprints. And our cities are that way because, ultimately, a betrayal of God. So relationships are harmful when we're not faithful to God. Secondly, verse 9, And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests, these are the leaders. These are, these are the religious leaders. Our priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they've committed crime. What happens next? Our leaders become untrustworthy. When you turn your back on God like our nation is doing more and more, our leaders become less and less trustworthy. What's the approval rating now of Congress? I just heard it was 7%, right? And of our judicial system, it's something like 20%. And of executive branch and President Obama, it's well below 50% as well. You see, leaders become untrustworthy when we turn our backs on God. And the same is true in the church. Too many church leaders are untrustworthy because they're manipulating for their own ends instead of openly saying, yeah, I'm a sinner too. I, I need God's grace just as much as every one of you. And if a church leader can't say that, then they're not very trustworthy. And then finally, verse 10, the result is that the people become defiled. Unclean is the word. Religiously unclean. It's the idea that that people's lives just get more and more messy and and less wise and less be able, able to make good choices and they just make bad choices and it gets worse and worse and we see our culture becoming more and more that way because of people turning their backs more and more on God. That's why it's so necessary for us as the people of God to stand out and be different, as people who are learning to really Bring ourselves completely to God and trust Him and develop true intimacy with Him so that there can be true purity and cleanness of heart. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. May we be people of purity of heart. All this is pretty heavy. But he ends with the message of hope, verse 11. Also, O Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. God has a plan to even work through the messiness of our lives to bring about true restoration, true restoration to him, true life. It reminds us that when we are willing to come to him and admit freely our sin, that the restoration process begins at that point. When we come to the foot of the cross and realize the ground is level there and we all need forgiveness every moment and that's our attitude, then God loves to begin the restoration process. So in conclusion to all this, what can we say? Well, number one, that... Jesus is the one who truly fulfilled everything that Israel failed in. They were disloyal, they were unfaithful, they were adulterers. They never got it right. But God had a plan all along to send Jesus as the one who would fulfill true chesed, true loyal love and intimacy with the Father that will bring full healing and resurrection. And it's in trusting Him that we can begin to experience the kind of healing that God wants us to experience as we come to Him for the right reason. My friend who went through this terrible betrayal goes on to say this, However, despite all the pain, despite the losses, despite the betrayal, When the one God who has experienced cosmic betrayal comes alongside, then slowly, ever so slowly, you learn to navigate the wound inflicted by another's unfaithfulness. You learn to live with being forgotten and unloved. You come to realize that any true romance must allow for the possibility of betrayal. That is the risk that authentic, unmanipulative love takes. Then you find yourself responding more deeply to the heart of Christ, who, on the night he was betrayed, gave his body and blood. You ask him to teach you to love extravagantly as he does, not despite the betrayal wound, but because of it. You see, our woundedness is not something to run from, but it's something that God gives us to drive us to him that we might come and recognize how needy our own hearts are and so that we can learn to love deeply out of that true repentance we can only love God and others as we depend on Jesus but we have his life in us he whom we betrayed has loved us enough to die for us and now live through us to help us to love others We're called to let Jesus live through us to bring restoration to this broken world that is full of violence and neediness. And we can do that as we come with open hands, bringing nothing but our sin and in receiving His forgiveness and His love that we now can share with others. So let me encourage all of us, myself too, to to live our lives in true repentance, what you might call constant repentance. Always recognizing I'm a sinner that needs God's grace every moment. And when God convicts you of sin, face it squarely. Truly repent. Admit your sinfulness. Bring no excuses. Bow at the foot of the cross and receive his forgiveness. Have the attitude of chapter 14 of, Lord, I need your grace every moment. You see, God wants a restored covenant relationship with you. He doesn't want our insincere repentance, but He wants all of us to be His. And all He wants us to do is to bring our sinfulness and let the blood of Christ wash us clean. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage, it's so clear your love for us, your pursuit of us is so great. You long for us to be in that intimate marriage-type relationship with you where we have loyal love, but we confess, Lord, that we are not good at trusting you. We, we so easily trust in other things. So now, today, together, we confess our sin to you. And now let's take a couple moments of silence just to confess whatever the Lord's laying on your heart that he wants you to lay before him. I'll be quiet and then I will close this in prayer. So a couple moments of silent confession before the Lord. Lord, we confess our wayward hearts to you. We ask you to cleanse us, to redirect us. In your grace, may you tear us that we may face our iniquity and let it go and give it to you at the foot of the cross. We ask you to renew our love for you, to plant in us a truly chesed love, a loyal love, that pleases your heart. We worship you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace that's new every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.